The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Berean Bible Church. So, yes, um, today we're going to be talking, I know big words here, universal reconciliation. Let me just go over that real quick for those who, I don't want to, you know, be all theological, but basically we're talking about the doctrine that everybody gets saved. Everybody's saved. Everybody goes to heaven. Everybody's saved. So, yep, we're done. That's it. Over the past few years, I've encountered, as anybody that spends any time online dealing with any of these chat groups, you find people in circles and social media friends who've fallen into the universalistic camp, these doctrines. A couple years ago, I wrote some blog posts about these issues, which is kind of where I'm drawing from here, and dealing with some of the ways that they interpret these scriptures. And actually, in thinking back, I believe one of my first encounters was going back into the 1990s, actually. One of my Christian singer, musician, Christian rock singers that I really liked uh, started promoting this. And this was back in the days when we had just email. We didn't have all the different social media groups. So I engaged with him over many, many emails, back and forth, back and forth. Sadly, I found a lot of his arguments very deficient in, you know, many ways. People throw verse out after verse out after verse out. Just all the words, all, all the verses that say all, all this. God loves all people, does all of this. And they just throw it out there without really understanding any of the terms, you know, what, what all, how it's used, things along that line. Just to make the, con- the point that it's all conclusive. They, you know, anytime all means all, all, all is said, it's always all. Always all people, all inclusive without exception is how they would look at any use of the word in all. The word all. Now, I'm not saying that all who believe in reconciliation and universal reconciliation are necessarily just as weak in their theology as some of the people that I've run across. But I have yet to really find anyone who promotes the belief that doesn't have some underlying theological stance that is already a bit off track and can be seen as a cause of then further leading them down a path into further error. Universal reconciliation is probably the more specific or technical technical theological term for the view. And it's often preferred by most of those who hold it. While a lot of us often just call it universalism, some see the generic term universalism as being more applied to a slightly different view, one of uh, that all religions lead to heaven. That's just, you know, any religion you believe in. So the difference with saying universal reconciliation, is it's kind of bringing it back to the Bible. It's basically that you still have the Bible plan, but that the Bible plan is that all, all people go to heaven. So I understand these differences. I understand the nuances. But for the sake of brevity and speech, I will just be referring to the universal reconciliation view as universalism throughout this message. So just, you know, be warned. I'm not, I understand what they're saying. So in a nutshell... Proponents of this view would define it as saying Jesus is the only way to God. He died on the cross. He shed his blood for all mankind without exception. We can already see Arminianism is, is going to come into this heavily. That for every single person and that his blood is totally effective. Therefore, all mankind is redeemed 
reconciled, justified, and will ultimately be given eternal life to end up with the Father. Some who hold this view would also extend this application to Satan and the fallen angels, but not all camps would necessarily hold that. So, of course, you've got splinter camps in there also. Universalists are often quick to point out that universalism was held by the early church fathers, and it is true that some of them indeed did. Clement of Alexandria, who lived from 150 to 220, sought to reconcile Christianity and Greek philosophy by creating a synthesis of the two. His star pupil Origen lived from 185 to 250 and was the first to develop a systematic plan of salvation. And in his plan, he also included the ultimate reconciliation of Satan and the demonic hosts. According to Origen, the fires of hell were corrective, not punitive. A similar view that is connected to the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Origen's views on the matter were reached by taking a very Gnostic and spiritualized view on most key biblical passages employed to make his case. And his views were deemed heretical by many church councils in the early centuries of the church, of church history. After that, it disappeared for the most part until it resurfaced during the Reformation period among some of the sects of the Anabaptists. Most Reformed and Orthodox creeds dismissed the view as heresy in their confessions. It never really took deep roots or became a prominent, pro, gained any prominence in Orthodox circles. But then in the mid-1700s, it resurfaced in England, and in 1770 came to America with the teachings of John Murray. Initially, these teachers were Orthodox in every way, aside from their view on hell and, of course, universalism. Sadly, within a single generation, these teachers departed from Orthodoxy almost entirely, adopting basically a Unitarian theology. Again, their doctrine led them down paths even further from historically held doctrines of theology. The general path off the rails went something like this. They said that the loving nature of a God made any view of an eternal hell impossible to defend. You know, actually, if you think about it, almost any time you hear that term, I would say almost any time you hear that term, you can be assured that it probably is a false doctrine. If somebody says, I don't think a loving God would ever, and then you tack on what you want on that, that's probably because it's I don't think or I don't feel a loving God. It's I don't feel. It's when you start interpreting God as the God of your own nature. Anyway, a loving God, a loving nature of God would, no way he would send people to hell. That's, that's just one of the views. And because of God, of man's good nature and his free will, it makes an eternal hell unthinkable because man is free to repent even in hell itself. And obviously, any man who went to the horrors of hell would desire the act, desire an act to repent and be saved, making hell no more than a place of temporary correction at best. In placing the emphasis on, of salvation upon the nature of God and the free will of man, instead of focused on the atonement of Christ, the early universalists were led further into unorthodoxy. For if the will of a loving God was to save all men then hell is impossible, and salvation is of all a necessity. And if man's nature was good and his will free, then that renders hell also impossible, and the salvation of all men ultimate. With these two positions, it makes the orthodox teaching on the vicarious nature of the atonement an unnecessary view. 
And once you reduce or throw out that atonement from the equation, the idea of needing a belief in a trinity or even a resurrected Christ is the next to go. Some would reason that there really is no reason to believe in the fall of man, the necessity of the atonement, salvation by faith alone, etc. The list goes on. For once the doctrine of hell is thrown out, there's really nothing to be saved from. And so many orthodox views become obsolete and placed to their side. Sadly, we've seen a lot of people, even in our own camps, who you see them go down this path, and then they start talking against hell, then they become universalists, and then they become atheists. It happens all the time. It, not, not all the time, but it's, it's sad to see it happen. They reason themselves right out of the Bible. By the late 1700s, universalism has taken, had taken a foothold and began to grow. The well-known evangelist Charles Finney had many debates with universalists. And as a way of seeking to defeat their view, he morphed his own view into one that is even now still commonly used and held in modern churches. He removed the historical orthodox understanding that the atonement was actually effectual and that the cross had actually accomplished salvation for those it was intended. In place of that, he said the cross simply made salvation possible. So in essence, Christ did not secure salvation for anyone and he did not die for all men in the way that the universalists taught. So his arguments basically were in you know, response to theirs, and he kind of morphed it into, again, we hear that same type of doctrines these days. It's just, it just makes salvation possible. By the early 1900s, those who fell into the camp of liberal theology were normally universalists, while those who held to the inspiration of Scripture taught the doctrine of eternal separation. A couple decades later, in the 1960s, Karl Barth came on the scene with the neoliberal views mixed with universalism. And he sought to bring those views into popularity by infiltrating the evangelical colleges and seminaries. While those holding to these views started to call themselves evangelicals, they, in truth, rejected the very doctrines that that had historically made one an evangelical. In particular, the inerrancy of Scripture. Barth was raised in a Calvinistic heritage and took parts of that merged with his liberal theology and universalism, and produced what has since been called a new humanism theology. The universalism taught today tends to be still highly influenced by this Karl Barth's new humanism and would still fall into the realm of liberal theology. There appear to be two key doctrinal stances that universalists and new and old would still hold on to. One, God is an all-loving God and would never send anyone to hell for eternity. And two, hell is not forever. It is corrective and not punitive. The historical doctrine of an eternal conscious torment in a fiery lake does appear to be a key factor or driving force behind why many have swayed to the universalistic side. They reason God would never condemn a majority of his children to an eternal torture like that. I found one universalist blog site where the opening lines stated, Am I a heretic? Maybe. If believing that God is all-powerful, all-loving, wiser than His creation, and perfectly willing and capable of saving all of His children, if that makes me a heretic, sign me up. A belief that God is all-loving, and then actually limiting or focusing His attributes to mainly only 
that is, as I said, a key factor in universalistic thought. And when you have others promoting their views, their view of universalism by posing an equally twisted view of God in questions like this, which God is correct? The weak God who wishes he could save everyone, but only ends up saving those who freely come to him? The mean God who chooses to save only a few and not the rest? Or the loving Father who actually does save all of his children in the end? Like, <laughs> that's how they're putting it. I mean, come on. When you word things like that, there's, you know, it's like, you can't choose A or B. It has to be C. I love this presentation where two views are obviously obnoxiously negative, leaving only one acceptable choice. Of course, when all three views are biblically erroneous, what's the use at all other than to promote a flawed position? It's to build a straw man argument. This was a post on Facebook, and while I try to stay out of such frivolous conversations, I actually responded to this post. To be honest, the wording here being just such a complete, ignorant, and unbiblical representation of Yahweh, it sparked a bit of my passion, and I got baited into responding. (laughs) So in an effort to show the word view in point B, I sought to remind them that, no, it is not a mean God who chooses to save a few. It is, in fact, a merciful and gracious God who saves anyone at all when everyone deserves nothing but death. Instead, this type of silly presentation seeks to imply that God owes mankind salvation and is either too weak or too mean to secure it, which is, of course, a totally unbiblical position. But that tends to be what is found, the often common factor being an oversimplistic and truncated man-centered view of God and his attributes. To believe that Yahweh is so loving that he would never hurt his creation and definitely not to send them to an eternal hell, however you wish to understand your idea of hell, is a view of God and his attributes that is not found within the pages of Scripture. In actuality, the only reason, the only real mention we have of the love of God to people in general is in the context of and connection to the vicarious atonement of Christ, which, as we've discussed, in some views is not even an emphasized ingredient. The point is, we hear more of the justice, judgment, and mercy of God than we do the love that they wish to make the main central attribute that universal salvation hinges upon. Now, before going further, let me state that I wish I could stand up here and go through each and every one of the verses that the universalistic person is going to throw out to make their case, but obviously there's not time for that. I found one site, it was just simply 112 verses that they say teach universalism. And I have them listed in my notes, but I couldn't deal with them, so I couldn't take the time to deal with them. (laughs) Honestly, I had to chuckle at just how sad some of the proof texts were and how badly out of context they were being used. Instead, my goal today would simply be to cover a few key passages and verses that I tend to find more often used by the proponents' view And I will seek to show how they are either using these verses out of context or have misunderstood them because of the use of the words in the English versus the original language that they were written in. I will also seek to discuss a few verses that cannot be twisted to fit their universalistic stance at all. Because we hold that the scriptures do not contradict themselves doctrinally, all I need to do is show that a few verses are totally irreconcilable with universalism, so then the whole system should be abandoned as anti-scriptural. 
It takes a great deal of hermeneutical and theological gymnastics in order to make some of these verses they use squeeze into the universalistic system. So let's begin by looking at the commonly held idea that God desires that all mankind be saved. This is from what we read earlier. Um, this is part of the First Timothy. This is from 2, 3, and 6. The verse they'll throw out is, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the, Christ Jesus, the, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So in reading this, simply on the surface level, in English and out of context, we would get the impression, yes, indeed, God desires that all men should be saved. He's just up there wringing his hand. I wish they'd all be saved. You know, I just thought of that, and I shouldn't go off path here. See, Bob, inside joke with Bob. See, I'm going off script, Bob. Anyway, if God saved all people, then why is God wishing that all men would be saved? Anyway, whatever. He knew it was going to happen, right? Or did he just, you know, whatever. A contradiction? Okay. Don't go off script. Um, <laughs> so the reader will look no further than simply considering this verse in English and out of context. Theological views are formed, and then other similar interpretations are influence-based on this type of a quick assessment. I don't know how many times I've heard these proponents say, all means all, which to them is to say all means every single one without exception all the time. So when it says God wishes all to be saved, it means he wishes all people, without exception of any, every single individual, to be eternally saved. And likewise, when, he were, when we are told that Jesus died for all, it means he died for all men, without exclusion, each and every single person to have ever lived. They don't get this view from looking at the original language or from even considering the usage in the same, of the same word all in scriptures that don't fit their understanding. They are simply satisfied and just keep repeating, all means all, all means all. Of course, I'm painting with the wide brush here, but from the experiences I have had, this is most often the case and the argumentation. And I think a part of the issue lies in the misunderstanding of the Greek word lying underneath the English translation for all. Oddly, when you try to bring up the discussion like what this little word all means in the original language, they will almost always ignore it and dismiss it. They start throwing out things like, stop speaking to me about man-made understandings, as if I'm using some kind of trick to distort the Word of God. But isn't that backwards thinking? After all, the scripture in question comes from a Greek and Hebrew language that has been translated to English by man. So you're reading a man's understanding when you read the English. So the English Bible translation is the big part of the man-made part of the equation and is, the only, is only as good as the translators were. So, I agree, all does mean all, but all does not always mean all-inclusive, as we may initially tend to think. It, is, it isn't even used that way typically in the English language. In the original language, when you consider the Scriptures within their proper covenantal and historical context, it makes no sense at all when you try to force that view upon it. But before I get into the original languages and get all the theological and technical, let's just read, let's just simply consider the English word itself to see some examples of how we use it in our day-to-day time and how it can mean something different in different scenarios. Man, I tossed and turned was up all night. So we are absolutely saying that we did not sleep a single moment in the entire night. 
Sure, we could be saying that is literally true. That could literally be true, but is that what we normally mean? Is that commonly how we would understand that? Of course not. We're simply saying we were up, felt like we were up a good portion of the night tossing and turning. I wish you'd stop getting on my case about this all the time. So not a minute goes by when the person is not on the other person's case about this problem. I think about you all the time. Yeah, that's sweet and all. But am I really saying that not a single minute goes by that I'm not thinking about you? Nope. All the time. <laughs> Think about you all the time. If all means all-inclusive as they claim, then we are using the word incorrectly even today. And of course, we find the same type of usage in scriptures too. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Every single person in Jerusalem, without exception, was troubled. Really? Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the regions about Jordan. And they were baptized with him in, of him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Every single person in Judea and every single person in every single region of Jordan got baptized by John. Again, the devil taketh him up into the exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. So from the top of that mountain, Jesus was able to see every single kingdom across the entire earth, flat or round, I don't care what your view is. I don't think he could see all the kingdoms, as they would say this word would imply. Now I could go on, but you hopefully get the point. Context is of the sentence structure, as well as the cultural and covenantal use of the term, play a huge part in the word and how we understand it. While I wish as I am sure many of you do too, the translators would always be consistent in their translations. This is not always so. And when taken strictly at face value, yeah, it might lead to some confusion as a universalist might make. So let us delve into the original languages just a little. There are a few different Greek words that can be translated for all. And some of it depends on whether it's in being used as an adjective or an adverb. I wish to focus on one focus. Uh, I wish to focus in on just two main root words that are usually used and translated in some form of the English term for all in the majority of texts that we are used that we're seeing used by the universalists. And I'm not going to pronounce this proper right, but you know, holos, all, whole, every wit, all together. Anybody with the interlinear Bible, Strong's Concordance, electronic Bible program would have no problem looking this up. The first word is the Strong's number, 3650, holos. And uh, the meaning is listed as all, whole, or completely. This would be more of what we would consider for the word for all-inclusive, the whole of something. The second is Strong's number, 3956, pas. This one has been translated as all, all things, every, all men, whosoever, everyone, whole, all manner of, and every man. The meaning of the word is twofold. When used in the context of an individual, it means each, every, any, all, the whole, everyone, all things, everything. But when used in reference to a large number or a collective, some of all types. So all means some, sometimes. So 
The first word, holos, means whole, all-inclusive, the whole of whatever is the topic. And basically, this is the word that the universalist needs to find in order to make their case every time. For the word pos, it would depend on what the subject is that it applies to. But in the case of it speaking or referencing to a large number or group, it is understood as speaking of a part or selection of that group, a representation of all types of that group. So when applied to a larger group, it does not usually mean all-inclusive or every single one, but just a selective representative of the different species of that group. Now, with the original understanding in hand, let's go examine some of the usages in Scripture. First off, let's see one where both of these words is used in the same section. And he went throughout all, holos, Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every pos, disease, and every pos, affliction, among the people. Some translators say all instead of every in this verse. But it is the same word, pos, in the underlying language. And it's used in, both, in all the translations. And so there are, and then there are actually a few translators that would render it more correctly, stating it as, and Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. So we have both words used in this one verse, holo, meaning whole, meaning he did go throughout all of the land, but he did, but did he heal every single disease and sickness for every single person in this place? No, for the word pos, when used in reference to a group, tells us he healed all kinds and all types of sicknesses, diseases, and but not every single person or disease without exception. Then in the very next verse, there's an example of potential translational confusion for those who know, knowing the original word and usage here. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which, had, which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. Again, both words are used, as in the previous verse. But the English translations slightly are different here even though the same word, root word is used in the, in the same manner. He was known throughout the entire whole land of Syria, and they brought to him pos, speaking of a large group of a variety of sick people. So, all types or all manner of sick people. This cannot simply be forced to mean that every single sick person, without exception, was brought to him. So, as we can see, all does not mean all-inclusive, all of the time, in a manner that the universalists would wish to imply. Let's look at a few more examples before moving on. Here's a fun one. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now, most of you listening to me probably understand the word world here is the Greek word orchiamene, and does not necessarily mean the entire earth, as some universalist proponents might wish to make it, but it is understood from its more primary historical meaning as the part of the world inhabited by the Greeks at that time, or most generally, more generally, the Roman Empire. 
Thayer's definition says it's the inhabited earth, the portion of the earth inhabited by the Greeks in distinction from the lands of the barbarians or the Roman Empire, all the subjects of the empire. The point is the gospel message was to go beyond the realm of just Jerusalem and the Jews and it was to go out into the surrounding inhabited pagan empires also. So a translation would be just as valid to say, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all of the empire for a witness unto all types of nations, and then shall the end come. And again, note the speaker uses two variants of the word we translate as all, and he does so because in each case it is a different result that he is stating. While in English, we tend to lump them both into one word, and we can see that that's very easy to confuse. Now, there are so many numerous examples I could use, but I will stop with these examples and continue on now to look at some of the key verses that the universalists love to bring up. And we'll start back in 1 Timothy, where we read earlier, where uh, speaking of God, it says, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. To start with, let's put it back into its fuller context. You heard him read it earlier, hopefully, and I'm sure you remember every word he said. So the context is there. Anyway, but if we just kind of read back through it and we highlight what's being said right from the beginning of chapter 1, from the first part of this letter, verses 5 through 6, he speaks of those who have strayed into vain discussions and a wrong use of the teaching of the law. 8 through 10, he proclaims that the law is good if used lawfully and that it is to be used for the lawless and disobedient. And he lists a bunch of various types of sinful actions, summing them up as, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Then in verses 11 through 16, Paul lists how he has been given grace and the glorious gospel, even though he was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, and opponent, just as those previously mentioned are in their error. And how Jesus came to save sinners, of which he ranks himself as one. In verse 16, he claims that he received this mercy so as to be an example of the perfect patience of Christ, an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Notice right here, it is about those who were to believe in him for eternal life, not for every single person in the world, regardless of any belief or not. So there's already a limited group of people in Paul's mind. Then he, for the remaining of the first chapter, he charges Timothy to stay the course of the faith himself. This leads us directly into chapter 2, which states, I exhort therefore, because of all that, I exhort therefore, That first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, pas, all types of men. Like who? For kings, those who are in authority, those who may lead, that you may lead a quiet and peaceful life. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all types of men to be saved, pas, and to come into the knowledge of the truth. In using the Greek word pos here in a discussion where Paul speaks of many various collective groups and types of sinners, while speaking of grace bestowed to him, we can easily see the intended understanding in the original language was that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of all thanks be made for all types of men, such as kings 
and for all types of them that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet, peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. For this is the good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all types of men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, pos, all types of, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Every use of all here by Paul is the Greek word pos, which when speaking of a collective group is better understood as meaning a portion of or a variety of that group, which fits perfectly into the context of what Paul is speaking about here. Specifically, the context speaks of praying for those in leadership because if they become faithful and loving, he says it will be beneficial for himself and Timothy that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. Remember, this was a time of great persecution and tribulation for those holding to the gospel truth. Persecution came from all sides, including the ruling class. These ruling class scums, these politicians, would have been an easy group to think of ignoring when it came to the gospel. They may not have been considered worthy of it by many. Paul is saying, yes, even pray for those types of people because God wishes all types of people to be saved, even kings and those in authority. Augustine understood what Paul was saying here too when he wrote, And what is written that he wills all to be saved, while yet all men are not saved, is so said that all the predestined may be, may be understood by it, because every kind of man is among them. Augustine If it was to be understood as the universalist wishes to apply it to all men in general, then why does Paul even waste time listing specific groups? Why would Paul be exhorting Timothy to do any prayer, supplication, or thanks for anyone? Since ultimately, all of them are under the saving power of Christ already. Another often mentioned verse also in Timothy comes a couple chapters later when we are told, For this is the end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This one indeed sounds tricky, as it seems to imply that God is saving everyone, but especially believers. Hmm. Taking it at face value, though, really it kind of makes no sense. Why even mention it as if it is two separate groups, if both of them are receiving the same thing in the end? Of course, you guessed that the Greek word here for all is again pos. And when applied to a collective group, the people, it is to be understood as meaning all manner of people. So, obviously, God is the Savior of all types of people. But that still leaves us with seeking to understand what it means by especially those who believe. There are three things to note when dealing with this verse. The first one is the subject. Who is the Savior of all people here? It is Yahweh we're talking about and not Jesus, as is often considered when you come and talk about the topic of atonement, salvation, redemption, eternal life, etc. Yahweh is the Savior of all types of people. And this is true and has been true from ages past. The question is, what are the people being saved from by Yahweh? Is this verse dealing with eternal life? We're not really told specifically. We are told that during, we know that during this time in history, on the brink of the ultimate destruction of the covenant people and the temple system, there was both a literal, physical, material salvation 
the preserving of life from the coming wrath that was coming upon the people in the city, as well as the spiritual salvation and gift of eternal life to be had. Which of these is God saving people from in this verse? In the preceding verses of the chapter leading up to this section, we are told two we are told of those who have left the faith, who have devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. They were liars, they were forbidding to marriage, they were abstaining from food that Yahweh had created for good. Then Paul speaks of those who are being trained in the words of faith and sound doctrine, not falling for the silly myths, but who are being trained in godliness of which he says is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And then the verse in question comes right in. So he first makes reference to those who are straying from the faith, and then he mentions those holding to godliness, being blessed in the present physical life, as well as being blessed in the life to come. Could it be that God is indeed the Savior of all types of men in this present life, especially and eternally saving believers in the life to come? It goes along the same lines as what Paul also says about Christians in Galatians. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Either way, the point is clear that no matter what kind of salvation there is, physical or spiritual, it comes from God. And any man that is ever saved in this present life or in the life to come, salvation comes from Yahweh. For Yahweh is the only Savior of any and all men, but especially those who believe. As one commentator says, the further description of God as the Savior of all men is evidently directed against the rigorous demands of the false teachers and is intended to show that God is not merely the Savior of a handful of ascetics, for God's offer for salvation applies to all men without distinction. And this calls for the universalistic proclamation of His word of grace in order to bring the lost to faith. So again, you can see he's saying it's not all men without, with, it's, it applies to all men without distinction, but it not without exception. Again, it's all types of. And he goes on saying, it is a mistake to detach this verse from its life situation and make it either a prop for universalism or the enemy of predestination. We shall be able to avoid such errors only as we seek to interpret every text within its proper context. That's from Jeff Wilson's Pastoral Epistles. So beyond considering the context, the word especially is itself a questionable translation and understanding and somewhat confusing. The word used here is malista and is translated a number of ways as usual, all of which still kind of seem confusing here as if they are implying two types of salvation, general and special. The word translated as is translated as especially, chiefly, most of all, or above all. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is a Savior of all types of people, in other words, of those who believe. Instead of especially, could be the translation, in other words, of those who believe. So there may not be two salvations here in, to be talked about either way. So the verse... The verse should not be understood as necessarily speaking of two salvations, but simply a reiteration of the parties involved in the salvation. A salvation that was not to be limited to a single people group, as the Jews maintained. 
Moving on and looking at another favorite verse often spoken of by those who hold universalism. In John 12, 32, which says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Again, the word pas. Go back. <clears throat> Again, the word pas, and when applied to a collective group, it simply can, should mean all of, not all inclusive. All types of, not all inclusive. So if he is lifted up, he will draw all types of people to himself, plain and simple. We could go on and on with additional examples, but instead let's look at the covenantal aspects that some of these universalism interpreters seem to be totally missing. I'm going to keep this really simple. I'm making an assumption that most of you probably understand a bunch of this because we can't go into this and repeat that. But in general, the Old Testament tells us of how eventually God rejected the nations and He chose a new people. The rest of the books of God are dealing with His new people, a special people chosen out of all the nations, a small group in comparison to the many nations, but a group in which God showed special treatment. They had the oracles and the sacraments of God. They had His laws, His words, His special blessings. They were His people unlike any other nation. God had this special relationship with them, and He established a covenant with them. They lived under the blessings of this covenant, and they received things that no other people received from God. Other nations were condemned to, were condemned to be destroyed by Yahweh. One of the promises God gave to His people was that, that of a coming Messiah, a Savior who would come to set them free in a way that never before had been experienced since Adam's fall. They, the people of God, this small group of people, were given a special promise of redemption by their Creator that no other nation was promised. When their Savior came upon the scene, He came first and foremost to His people. That was His mission, to His people, the covenant people of God, as we see in Matthew 15. His mission was to them, and He was their Messiah. He collected and taught the twelve, And then he sent them off to the same covenant people throughout Matthew 10. Sure, I'm painting here with broad strokes, trying to keep it simple. And sure, I know the promise of the coming and restoration of the other nations was prophesied and was a part of the plan from the beginning. Likewise, we know the eventual divorce and destruction of God's once covenant people was also foretold. Deuteronomy 32, Isaiah 65 through 66, etc. But for now... The scene playing out during the time of Jesus was that this was the Messiah reaching His chosen and covenant people. He's here. Even they didn't want to believe that. So from the start, His direct mission, stated by Him directly, was limited to the remnant of that of the nation of God's covenant people. And He sent, He was their Savior. He had come to them and He sent forth apostles to them for their repentance. The focal point of Jesus' ministry while He was here was to those covenant people of God. The Jews likewise had in their mind that it was to them and them alone that God was providing for, for they had the promise of the Messiah only for them. Even the apostles who knew who Jesus was were still under the impression that He was only there to solely bless and save the Jews. The division between Jews and the rest of the nations was great, and to them, salvation was only for the Jews. Those who covered who converted to become followers of Jesus, likewise 
tended to think that they were, that he was solely concerned with this covenant people of old. We know even Peter had concerns while taking his message to the others, like Cornelius at first, because it was just unnatural for that. But then he makes the following announcement. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. And in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. In this first section of Acts, he clearly sees that the gospel message is no longer just for the Jews as he and others had thought, but that it is open to the pagan nations as well. He knows now that the good news originally sent through and to Israel is also available to the rest of the nations. For Jesus is the Lord of all, pos, all types of people, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, etc. We've heard the verse. We've seen it again and again. Jesus is for all, but here, like elsewhere, it is not a reference to being all-inclusive or on an individual basis, but of all in the sense of him being Lord of all manner or all types of men. The cultural division between people is not a division in the gospel message, for it goes to all manner of people, for he is a savior of all manner of people. He continues on in the same section stating, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed to be to, to by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Again, the message is very limiting in nation. Only those who believe in Jesus receive forgiveness of sins. So this means that there will definitely be a group who do not believe. So how do they get their sins forgiven? Scripture does not have this such a message. For if they die in their sins, they do not have eternal life, but they perish. This is, or should be, common knowledge to those who read the Bible. This is the cultural and understanding of those living at that time in script, as Scriptures were taking place. The Jews were originally it when it came to the relationship with the Creator. The pagan nations were not. So you have these preachers, the apostles, who now burst into the scene with claims that not only was Jesus the Messiah, he was a sacrifice and savior of his people, but also that his salvation was now being offered to those outside the old covenant people. The gospel went to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles. This was a hard pill to swallow for the Jewish man at the time frame. Instead of their Messiah coming to save only them, he came to save the whole world, meaning all types of people in the world, and not just the Jews exclusively. So when keeping this understanding in mind, you should be able to clearly understand that when all-inclusive sounding terms are used in this period in Scripture, it is most likely pertaining to countering this Jewish-only mentality. For instance, when we are told things like how Jesus died for all or died for the world or is the Savior of all, those are not a declaration of Jesus' work being for every single member of mankind, but that those things are not limited in scope to just Yahweh's old covenant people, as so many believed at that time. Likewise, for such large encompassing language, such as how Jesus takes away the sins of the world, like a statement, such a statement was in fact a direct addressing of the issue that Jesus was the Messiah, that his sacrifice was simply was not simply for the Jews as expected, but that he had died for, you guessed it, all manner of men, 
or as stated elsewhere, that he died for the whole world, meaning both Jews and non-Jews. Peter had already stated it clear enough, but Paul likewise makes that abundantly clear in Romans 11, speaking of how the trespass of Israel means salvation and riches for the world, also referred to as the Gentile nations. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. <coughs> now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? <clears throat> Paul equates the salvation going to the Gentiles as equivalent to saying salvation has gone out to the world. And it doesn't mean every single person of the Gentile world will be saved. This is just not the message of and being used here or the language. Plus, as we've touched on and shall see, the sacrifice made was not given to be all-inclusive of the world to begin with. At the time of Jesus, the Jews had to be taught that now in the gospel age, the old ways of Judaism were quickly passing away. And salvation was being offered to all men everywhere in the world and all types of men regardless of nationality and lineage and not just the Jews. This leads us right back to our look at one of the universalistic scriptures we discussed. Let's continue building to see again how in context this is exactly what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 2. I exhort you that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all types of men for kings and all those that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all types of men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of God. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all types, to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and of doubting. Paul get, makes it a special point to note that he was being called to be an apostle unto the Gentiles, again letting them know that the message and promises were no longer to be thought of as strictly applying only to a single group of God's original covenant people. But now the message, hope, and redemption and promises are for all types of men everywhere. <clears throat> now, Paul is in nowhere saying that God was wishing for every solitary member of the human race to be saved, as that would be contradictory to so many other passages that have a definite, limited scope of redemption. We've already discussed some of the passages where the Greek word for all has a limited scope, but what about some of the more clearer passages that show redemption was intended to be more restrictive? Let us turn our attention to one of the earliest passages regarding the prophecy of the coming Messiah and his promised redemption. Isaiah 53 tells us about the coming Messiah and the suffering he would go through and the ultimate redemption he would accomplish. Now look closely at the scope of this redemption. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He had put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil and the strong 
because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he has numbered, he was numbered with the transgressors, and bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressions. <clears throat> so we are told he would come, and by a sacrifice he shall bear the sins of all. Every single human being, right? No, it says he will bear the sins of many. Looking at the Hebrew word for many is the word rab or rob. None of the meanings of this word could be stretched to apply to every single person scenario. It has a limited scope in mind. This was an early prophesied hope given to Israel that many would be saved, a remnant as it is known elsewhere. This limiting idea is what the Israelites would have expected from the start, not an all-encompassing salvation. Of course, they thought that many would be a remnant from only within their people, not including any of the foreigners. Also note in the redemption plan, it is noted that he shall see his seed. Some may try to argue that we are all God's children. We are all his seed. Therefore, this obviously applies to every single person. However, it takes very little effort to prove otherwise. Flip back to the garden and God's declaration of the promise of the Savior back then. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou hast cursed, thou art cursed above all cattle. And above every beast of the field, upon the belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and, thy, and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So we have two seeds mentioned. The seed of the woman, speaking directly of Jesus, and ultimately to those that are his. And the seed of the serpent, and ultimately to those who are his. Regardless of your take on the meaning of the seeds in this passage, the point is clear. There are two separate groups of people being considered here. Now you jump back to the New Testament scriptures, and what are we told there? First, we have Joseph being told of his wife's pregnancy, and the angel tells him, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Not all people, not the Satan's seed, the devil's seeds, but, you know, his people. Not every single people. Just those that are his, but aren't all people on earth children of God, right? Therefore, they're people of Jesus, right? That's the same. That tends to be the view of most universalists. But according to Scripture, as we've already seen, there are two seed lines. On top of that, we find Jesus later making a distinction, a distinct delineation between the two lines and their fathers. When speaking with some of the Jewish leaders, he says, I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works of your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father... You would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand this, understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So if everyone is truly considered a child of God, then I guess Jesus was mistaken. <clears throat> Jesus divides the lines into the children of his father and the children of the devil, similar to what we have in Genesis. And again, it matters not how you interpret the two fathers. The point is, two groups of people, 
not all of them being children of God. We also find that Jesus again divides people using different languages when he speaks of the story of the Good Shepherd. He divides mankind into those that are his sheep and those that are not. And he plainly states, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So the Jews surrounded him and began to say, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I told you and you do not believe. The deeds that I do in the name of my Father, those testify about me. But you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish forever. <clears throat> and no one will seize them out of, my, out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can seize them from the Father's hand. So if Jesus says he lays down his life for the sheep only, and then he tells these people that they are not his sheep, then can we easily deduce that he did not lay down his life for them? And if not, then by whose blood are they redeemed? And we can further deduce that he gives only his sheep eternal life so that they will never perish. So the question is, where are the non-sheep ever promised to be given eternal life and not to perish? If he gives his life for the sheep and he only gives them eternal life, then the non-sheep people being addressed here do not have life, so therefore they indeed perish, and universalism is proven wrong, unless Jesus is wrong. So, And if this group can have neither, then how can anyone twist Jesus' word to say that he is in fact laying down his life and paying the price to give every single person in the world, without exception, eternal life. In an echo of the passage we looked at in Isaiah, even Jesus repeats this thought. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Isaiah 53, he's bringing it right up again. At another time, when he was establishing the actual new covenant, he states the same limiting factor, saying, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on the right, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you by the, from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those of his left, the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And those goats will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous sheep into eternal life. So again, the language of blessing for the sheep and not for the others, the goats, is evident. And Matthew already recorded a similar situation in chapter 8. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So again, in light of these and even more similar passages, how can a case possibly be made out, of, out to say that salvation is universalistically applied to every single member of mankind and that all will be ultimately given eternal, blessed life if time and time again we are told of two separate groups with two separate destinations? Where are we told that at some point after this judgment, after this separation, that these goats are brought back from perishing? How do you get brought back from perishing? They're removed from obviously not an eternal punishment, not a punishment that's not reversible. 
They're somehow renewed and they receive the kingdom also. Where, where's, where's that message? Where's the reversal of judgment from the wicked ever mentioned in Scripture? It has to be somewhere in order for universalism to have a case at all. And this judgment motif is nothing, nothing new that is presented in the New Testament, for even this similar judgment scenario is presented in a similar manner in earlier Old Testament prophecy. Daniel tells us in the resurrection, he states, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contentment. Two groups of people, two different punishments. Paul echoes the same thing, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And in Revelation, we were likewise given the scenario in different terms. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in these books according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found in, written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So in all instances of this judgment motif throughout Scripture under Revelation, find the same scenario. Two groups, two final destinations. The one thing we don't have, the one thing that seems totally missing, is that in none of these situations is there ever mentioned a future change of destination for either group. And if you have a group that are justified, the just, and the second group that are not, the unjust, then by what means could the unjustified group ever be granted eternal life if they are not justified by Christ? If Jesus died for the sheep and not the goats, and he died to justify the many, and those many that were justified were raised to receive eternal life based on faith in the blood of Christ, then how are the goats, the unjustified, just ever to be reconciled without the blood of Christ? To believe such a notion would require a whole other gospel with a whole other kind of redeemer. We could look at all of the promises of eternal life mentioned for believers, but where are we told that those who are said to perish are in fact sometime restored and given eternal life also? We are not, but in fact we are told the opposite. And this is a testimony that God has given us eternal life. This life is in His Son. The one who has a Son has the life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. First John. So how does anyone without life end up getting life? Jesus went on so far as to tell us that some of those Jews that would in fact, not receive his blood atonement, shall die in their sins. I told you that you will die in your sins, and unless you believe in me, that I am he, you will die in your sins. <clears throat> of course, some universalists might attempt to get around this by explaining away the judgment of sin, saying that it is, in fact, a way to be redeemed after death. But you will search the Scriptures in vain, looking for a hint of any post-perishing conversion gospel. In light of the clear division consistently taught throughout. Then there are those universes who try to use the there is neither Greek nor Jew, but all are in Christ angle. They seem to fail to see that even this verse requires faith in Christ, meaning there is a group of those who have not faith in Christ, as we consistently see. But the scripture imprisoned everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But now that faith has come, we who are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ, for in Christ Jesus, you who believe are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
There is neither Greek nor Jew, Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female. You are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs of the heirs according to promise. So those who believe, and only those who believe, are sons of God, are Abraham's offspring, regardless of the bloodline or heritage, meaning those who do not believe are not sons of God or partakers in the promise. So then whose sons are they? Are those who believe are those who believe and baptize into Christ, meaning those who have not, and those who are believed into Christ, meaning those who have not been baptized in Christ, who are they baptized in for their salvation? And those who believe and are baptized into Christ are all one in Christ, whether they are Greek, Jew, and it matters not for anyone is able to be in Christ. But again, this clearly teaches that there are likewise a group who are not believing, not baptized, nor in Christ. Again, two groups as we consistently see through Scripture. So then we can hopefully plainly see the Bible is clear when it speaks of two groups and only one of which received Christ's work of atonement and eternal life. And if there is a group out there that does not have this life, then how can the universalists hold that they still somehow eventually acquire it? And how can one who has not the Christ of God be likewise given the same blessings as those who do not have the Son? According to Second John, they do not. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. We are clearly told of the gift of grace to those in Christ. We are clearly told of the groups who are not part of that gift and grace. So then who and what is the redeeming source and sacrifice of the salvation of those people who have not Christ? Where in Scripture are we told that these people will be given some undisclosed future point in time granted a salvation outside of the blood of Christ after they've already perished. I believe that clearly it doesn't, no matter how hard you look at it, and that's why I believe universalism must be rejected as false and anti-scriptural. It goes against the clear case of of division presented throughout all of Scripture, and it seeks to twist some verses out of context, both historical and grammatical, to make a case that was never intended by by the original writer. Universalism requires an overemphasis on grace and love, which is not presented in Scripture in such a manner as they present. In Scripture, grace is particularized in more of an individualized center or small group application and not an all-inclusive manner. To remove this particularism of it and seek to apply it on a universal corporate scale causes grace to lose its whole purpose and meaning. Once grace is changed like this, it loses its gift status and becomes more of a debt that God owes, which is not how Scripture presents it. And in changing the emphasis on grace, there is also the loss of the scriptural view of the transition from wrath to grace, which again affects the substitutionary atonement. Van Til has this to say as a summation of how universalism strays from orthodoxy and how it logically leads to the conclusion that the death of Christ on the cross is not that by which he, as our substitute, saves us from the wrath to come, For there is no wrath in God that could issue in man's eternal death. The resurrection of Christ is not the event in history by which Christ arises from the dead for our justification. We are already justified in Christ. Thus, there is no place in history where God and man really confront one another. In the end, any theology that that seeks to generalize grace in this type of manner 
runs into a host of theological issues, such as it removes the significance of both faith and unbelief. It ignores the clear threats of the gospel that failed to believe will lead that, that failure to believe will lead to perishing. There is no such treat, threat in universalism, and so it is contrary to the gospel of Scripture. The offensiveness of the cross is removed because no longer are men required to look unto Christ as the only way of salvation. There is no motivation for evangelism if all men are saved regardless. If universalism is true, then all of the biblical groups, such as the saved versus the lost, the sheep versus the goats, the vessels of mercy versus the vessels of wrath, the elect versus the reprobate, the church versus the world, etc., make no sense at all. In the end, there are just too many verses that speak of a complete and final division of people, one into eternal life in the kingdom of God, the others perishing with no hint of their restoration ever being promised or completed at any point. It is only by severely twisting the context and meaning of the original languages that a case for universalism can even remotely be attempted to be made. And while the universalists may throw out more and more scriptures that I have not covered, they are doing nothing more than attempting to pit scripture against scripture, which can only be successful for their cause if they totally ignore the overarching theme and scheme of the revealed plan of Yahweh throughout scripture. For hopefully it's plainly obvious, just from the clear messages that we have covered today, that the basic gospel story consists of two groups with two destinations, and that this message is so ingrained in Scripture, there's no way to find a few verses that totally upset this message. Universalism requires a total reformulation of so much of the Scripture message in order to make it fit their view. It requires rewriting much of, and it, it turns so much of the Scripture on its head, making it appear contradictory, at times appearing simply gibberish. As mentioned earlier, one of the key proponent, uh, components that seems to connect to and to be the driving force between no, by those who push for universalism is the strong, often emotional opposition to a view of an eternal conscious torment theology. It's almost as if it's just this traditional view of hell is what's kind of stemming this whole pushback. But honestly, I think it'd be much easier to make a scriptural case opposing an eternal conscious torment, as many have done, than it would be to try to make a case to go the other way with universalism in order to combat eternal conscious torment. That's a topic for another discussion and has been made in previous messages. Let us pray as we went really long. Sorry. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for... We're, we're sad for the confusion. We thank you that it's clear. We're sad that people are often so misled and trying to prove their point. Pray, Lord, for clarity. We pray, Lord, that you would help us sustain in your word, that we would see these things, know the overarching story, know your will, know your, all of your, just who you are, Lord, so that we know that we would never stand here and make comments like, well, I don't believe God would. It's not about what we believe you would. It's what we are told you would and the examples we're given. We thank you so much for this blessing. We just pray that you would bless us in the week to come. 